I'd like to ask uh, all of us to turn in our Bibles this morning to page 1711. 1711, that's uh, the book of Acts, and we will be looking at uh, the end of chapter 11 and then also flipping over to chapter 13. Um, I just want to echo um, Pastor Young Kwong's prayer. I know a lot of us are connected to Milwaukee Lutheran High School. Many of us uh, had kids, students who went through there. Uh, just for clarification, there, was, uh, um, there were shots fired at a football game last Friday night. No one was injured, um, but those are, are scary times, and they are also the kind of times that can really... Um, affect an organization negatively and when we have fellow Christians who are uh, working so hard at glorifying the name of Christ um, in the city of Milwaukee we want to support our brothers and sisters and so I encourage you to keep praying uh, for the school as uh, as they deal with that situation and work through it and um, pray in particularly that uh, the name of Christ would be glorified in uh, in all of that uh, we are again in a, a series on the book of Acts and um, we're sort of in this transition point where we are just leading up to the, uh, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and that in fact is where our, our all church study um, begins um, and I hope that uh, you're involved in that in some way whether it's just personally or in your life group or study group. And um, those journeys really get started in chapter 13. Uh, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about the Church of Antioch and that period of, of transition. And so uh, we'll begin, as I said, page 1711 with verse uh, 19 of chapter 11. And um, last week, we looked at the conversion of, of, we'll say, Peter and Cornelius. That really goes through um, chapters 10 and 11, and we're picking up right on the heels of that account. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. 
The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so we have this reciprocation, right? It's the church in Jerusalem that send um, Barnabas and, and Saul really to, um, to Antioch. And now Antioch sends them back with a gift to help out in this time of famine. And then if you turn over to uh, chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two men, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends in Jesus Christ, uh, most families have a bit of uh, what, what I'll call family lore locked in a, in a vault that perhaps they open up whenever the family might get together and actually have enough time for storytelling. Um, we've got stories like that in our family. Most of my stories uh, from my childhood come from our kitchen dinner table and, uh, and from my three older sisters who had a way of making life interesting in our family. For instance, there was, a, there was a time my dad asked my sister to close the meal with prayer. And, and when I say that, you have to understand sort of the atmosphere um, present there. So we were all expected to memorize the Lord's Prayer, to be able to lead the family through that. And so there was always a bit of tension, like, who's he going to call on, and will we be able to remember all the words and things like that. And then these were also the days before cell phones, students. And so we actually had a phone hanging on the kitchen wall, and uh, that, again, tended to ring quite often during our meal, which also my father frowned on tremendously because it was often my sister's friends who were calling. Well, as I said, my, my dad had asked my sister to close the meal with prayer. Just then the phone rang, and so you could feel the tension going up in the room. My sister hopped up to answer the phone, and she greeted the caller with these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm sure that, uh, I don't remember who the caller was, but I'm sure they were pleasantly surprised by their promotion on that uh, particular day. One more story, same sister. Um, turns out she had not done real well in Bible class uh, that week, and we tended to discuss things like that also. My father brought up her test, which wasn't very good. One example he pointed out was the question, where were the disciples first called Christians? To which she had written the answer, Holland, Michigan. <laughs> now, in my sister's defense, there was kind of a firstness with Holland, Michigan. That's where the original Dutch immigrants came and started the first CRC. So, again, there was probably a little tension around things, and, uh, and she wasn't getting that real clear. But she had a first in mind. But Holland, Michigan, friends, is a far cry from Antioch. 
Okay? Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was a huge cosmopolitan type of city. It was also the launching pad for all of Paul's missionary journeys. And Antioch belonged to ancient Syria, but, um, but at this, it's part today of, of Turkey, so modern Turkey. You can see the location of Antioch on the map here. It's sort of in the middle of the map, just to the right. Um, and uh, you see Seleucia actually on the uh, seashore. So Antioch was just a little bit inland, about 12 miles in. And then across the bay on the Mediterranean, you see the island of, of Cyprus. And that's where some folks came from to witness into Antioch and also where um, Paul and Barnabas initially went on their first missionary journey. And we'll talk uh, more about this in the future. I just wanted you to see and get a glimpse of where Antioch really was. But for this morning's purposes, I don't really want to focus on the city of Antioch as much as the church at Antioch. Okay, we want to talk about the church at Antioch. And, um, and the church of Antioch is almost like a character itself in the book of Acts. And, and Luke sort of does this with, with many of his characters, right? He just sort of name drops, like he'll name drop the name of Stephen in Acts 6. He was one of the deacons filled with the Holy Spirit. And then a little later, he'll get this long account about Stephen, and, and he was a major player in the game. He does the same thing with Philip. He does the same thing with Saul. And he also does that with the church of Antioch. We've heard about Antioch a couple of times already, but now we really get into what the church of Antioch was all about. And what I'd like to do with you this morning is look at some of the character traits of this particular church. And as we do that, I'd like you to sort of compare the character of this church um, to Brookfield, to this particular congregation of Jesus Christ right here in Brookfield. So let's, let's start that. And um, the first thing that we see about this church in Antioch is that it was a diverse church. It was a very diverse church. And if you, you look back at chapter 11, uh, verses 19 and 20, and I hope again you have your Bibles open, but, but those verses affirm this. And if you recall, up to this point in the story, the gospel has been spreading but it's been spreading as a result of persecution. And that persecution began with the stoning of Stephen, but there we read that from Jerusalem, the believers kind of fled. They went out into the various places in the world, and that's how the gospel began to spread. Okay? But what we are told in these verses is that as these people went out from Jerusalem, they talked to their new neighbors and their new businesses, their own, you know, business owners and bosses and all of those people. But what we learn here is that just about all of those people were Jewish. So you have Jewish Christians now sharing the gospel with other Jewish people that they probably have a lot in common with. But then you also read in verse 20 that some... Luke tells us, and he tells us this very specifically, some shared the gospel with Greeks also. 
And who we're talking about here are Greek-speaking Gentiles. The gospel is going specifically now to Greek-speaking Gentiles. Now, don't lose the connection with what we talked about last Sunday. Peter had witnessed to the Gentile Cornelius, right? And he saw with his own eyes that Cornelius was converted, that Cornelius received the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. And so God had put his confirmation on that conversion. That's what happened last week. That's what happens right before this story. But up to this point, no one has strategically engaged in mission to the Gentiles. But that begins right here and right now. The gospel is now being shared, not just with Jews, but with Jews and with Gentiles. And the church in Antioch becomes a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church. Um, you, you see proof of that, actually, in chapter 13, the verses that we read there. Who were the leadership of this church? Well, Barnabas was a leader in this church. Barnabas was a Jew, but he came from the island of Cyprus, okay? Simeon was a leader in that church. Simeon was called Niger, which means black. He was almost certainly a black African, probably not Jewish, okay? Lucian was from Cyrene, which was also a country in North Africa. Now, he too may have been black, but he may not have been since uh, North Africa was not at this time um, populated by many blacks. He could have been, he may not have been, but he again was almost certainly a Gentile. Um, Mannion was someone who was actually related to Herod. We don't know if he was a foster brother or if he was adopted or, or what he was, but he was obviously from the upper class. He was considered to be royalty. And then you have Saul, who was obviously a Jew, but Saul was also an academic. Saul was almost like, well, he was probably a professor of type, of, of sorts. And, you know, those types of people can often intimidate us, right? So you have this, this incredible mixture of people in the church at Antioch. It was a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-class, multicultural kind of church membership, all right? That's the sort of thing that was going on here in, um, in Antioch. Now, why is that significant? Well, up to this point, you could sort of get the impression that Christian communities at this time were sort of forming along ethnic lines. And so you can get the idea that, well, maybe there was a, a, a Jewish Christian church that, that was the result of the preaching of the apostles, and then there was a Samaritan Christian church that resulted from the, the preaching of Philip. And then you might have a, a Gentile Christian church that resulted from the preaching of, of Peter. What we have then in Antioch is a new thing. It's a Christian church that is racially and ethnically mixed. It's Jews and Gentiles together. Okay? Those lines are broken now again, why is that important? Um, actually, there are lots of reasons why 
a multiracial church is important. Last week, I know I implied that, that, hey, it would be great if we had more races in this church. Why, why is that kind of thing important? Why does the Christian Reformed Church say that, you know, they keep encouraging and pushing our congregations to break down racial walls and become more multiracial? Why are those kinds of things important? Here's at least one of those reasons, okay? A racially diverse church points to the power and the love and the grace and the rule of our ascended Savior, Jesus Christ, almost like nothing else. How so? How so? Well, in those days, friends, people were used to seeing groups of of Jews gathered together worshiping. And they were used to seeing groups of Greeks gathered together worshiping and groups of Romans gathered together worshiping. What they were not used to were people from all of those groups gathering together and worshiping. Worshiping one common God. That, thing, that kind of thing was strange. It was unique. It was the kind of thing that made people sit up and look and say, what is going on there? That's unusual. That's something we've never seen before. And in that way, it pointed to a different God. Who are these people? They would ask. Who are these people? They're not Jews. They're not Greeks. They're not Romans. They don't seem to fit any of our categories. They don't fit any of our labels. They're Christians. They're Christians. That's the only label we can come up with. They follow Christ. You see, our God is a different God. He's a unique God. He is the creator of all the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of all the peoples on the earth. And he loves all the peoples on the earth. And he's calling all of those peoples to himself. Our God is above all the other little regional gods with their regional peoples. This is what Paul is talking about, friends, in Ephesians chapter 3. And it's important that we put these things together. There he says that the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ that was made known to the world is that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Together with Israel. Heirs. What are heirs? Heirs are children. We are all children of God. Heirs are inheritors. We all inherit the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple, that's where God lives, where he resides in a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles together. There are no dividing walls. He has broken down the thickest of all walls, the racial walls that have always stood between us. And Paul goes on to say, in this regard, the church is like a display piece, a display piece to the whole world, but also beyond that, to the powers and the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, a display piece of the power of Jesus Christ to unite and pull people together. All of those powers are powers that always push people apart. They divide 
They're powers of pride, where we take pride in our culture, pride in our race, pride in our sexuality, and the list goes on and on. This is how we're different. This is how we're unique. Jesus Christ breaks down those walls and pulls his people together. So why is it important that the church at Antioch was diverse? Because a church of diversity points to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can accomplish something like this. Their unifying factor, the glue that holds people together, is not their Dutchness. It's not the Packers. It's not their social and economic status. It's not the music that they like and the songs that they sing. What pulls them together is Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. He's the lowest common denominator. He's the one thing that we cannot do without. Jesus. Jesus. The church at Antioch was a diverse church. Second character trait is that the church at Antioch was a rooted church. It was deeply rooted. So, let's think about this. This was a new thing, right? Jews and Gentiles gathering together in one church. Verse 22 says, It was this church at Jerusalem that sends Barnabas to Antioch then to check it out. So, this new church, something's going on in Antioch. What does the church in Jerusalem do? They say, Barnabas, we want you to go to Antioch, check this out, see what's going on. See what's happening. Now, some people might be offended by that, right? I mean, who are those people in Jerusalem anyway? Who do they think they are? I mean, if God wants to do something new, God gets to do something new. Nobody gets to say different. If God is doing something new in Brookfield, I mean, what is the rest of the church? What right do they have to question it? It's sort of the mindset of our day. But let's think again about what's happening here. Okay? This is a new thing that's going on. The gospel is being proclaimed specifically to Gentiles. A new church is the result. A church of mixed race. How do we know that this is from God? How do we know that this is from God? And then you begin to look. There is a relationship chain here that's going on. Barnabas came from where? Barnabas came from the church in Jerusalem. What is the church in Jerusalem? Where did the church of Jerusalem come from? The church in Jerusalem was founded by the apostles. Where did the apostles get their call? The apostles got their call from Jesus Christ himself, right? In chapter 1, the apostles were also there living with Jesus as Jesus did his teaching and preaching and ministry. The apostles understand The teachings of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus says, I came from the Father. Full of grace and truth. I reveal the Father to you. So what's happening here, friends, is something new is going on in Antioch. And we have to follow the chain back to find out, is this thing from God? Does it line up with the teachings of the apostles? which line up with the teachings of Jesus, which line up with the teachings of God himself. Is this new thing from God? 
Friends, those are questions that have to be asked in the church. Is this from God? So is this new church from God? Well, remember what we said last week. We pointed out the fact that this was, or uh, Cornelius' prayers went up before God as a memorial offering, right? And what we said was that was, that was to prob, prod God's memory, to jog his memory a bit, right? To remember his covenant promises. And in his covenant promises, the Gentiles had been there from the beginning, so yes, this was a new thing to us as believers, but was this a new thing to God? No. It was in God's mind the entire time. It was in the prophets. It's certainly in Jesus. And it's in the teachings of the apostles. It's part of our apostolic faith. Was this new movement from God? Yes, of course it was. Friends, this is a question we always have to ask. When there's a new thing going on in the church, is it rooted in God? Okay? This is the question these days that's surrounding the whole question of our human sexuality. Right? The logic goes something like this. You know, if, if, Peter, if Peter needed to be converted to see that 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 God's salvation was intended for the Gentiles also. If he didn't recognize that at first, he had to be converted in that regard, then maybe, maybe the rest of us also need to be converted to see that God accepts people of all, of all sexual persuasions, all sexual orientations and practices. Maybe God is again doing a new thing and we need to see that and recognize it. That's a question that's prevalent today, okay, throughout the church. What did the CRC do when facing that question? We went back to Jerusalem. Okay? We looked at that question in the light of our apostolic faith, in the light of the teachings of Jesus, in the light of God's teaching in the entirety of his word. Okay? We don't just go by opinion. We go back to the apostolic faith the teachings of Jesus, and to God himself. Now, what did our synod say in that regard? Well, you've heard it before, but I'll say it again. It's important. Our synod said that, yes, we in the church do need to be converted in our thinking. We do need to be converted. Our hearts need to be converted. Our minds need to be converted to see that all people no matter their sexual orientation, all people are candidates for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Sexual orientation does not make some people more eligible for salvation and some people less eligible for salvation. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago about conversion. Conversion. Each and every one of us in our sinful state is an enemy of God, each and every one of us, no matter our sexual orientation. We're enemies of God in the sense that our orientation is to self-salvation. We can save ourselves. And our orientation is to self-serving. And God wants all of us to be reconciled to him 
through his son, Jesus Christ. All of us need that reconciliation. But we need to be converted to see that. Unconverted hearts and minds think in some way that sexual orientation makes some people superior to others. The gospel of grace teaches us that no person is superior to another. All of us stand before God as helpless sinners. All of us. Now, what our synod went on to say, as you know, is that all sinners, again, no matter of our sexual orientation, all sinners must be converted. What is conversion? We turn from something to something. We turn from sin to Jesus. We turn from self-salvation to salvation through Jesus Christ by grace. We turn from self-serving to serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and no one else. In other words, whoever we are, no matter our sexual orientation or anything else, all of us have been called to leave sin behind and to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of our lives in every aspect. In other words, yes, Peter needed to be converted, but so did Cornelius. All of us need that conversion to put our hope in Jesus Christ, leave our sin behind. That's what a rooted church does. Antioch was a rooted church. We also need to be a rooted church. The third character trait of the church at Antioch is that they are an encouraged church. They are encouraged. Antioch had a Barnabas. And friends, Barnabas wasn't just there to check up on their orthodoxy. Barnabas also came with a spirit of joy and gladness and encouragement so that even in areas where people were not living up to that orthodoxy, he saw that the grace of God was at work in this place. The grace of God as opposed to works righteousness. And when the grace of God is at work, people turn to Jesus Christ and nothing less to find their salvation. Barnabas looked for evidence of God's grace in that church. Barnabas encouraged them to remain true. In other words, to persevere, even when times got tough, even when there was persecution. And he encouraged them to wholeheartedness, to follow Jesus with everything that they had. Friends, we can't have enough Barnabases in the church. People who don't just, you know, evaluate our faith. But people who come alongside of us and gladly and joyfully walk with us and affirm with us what's worth affirming and picking us up when we fall. So here's a good question for after church sometime in your circles, in your family, whoever it is. Who has been a Barnabas in your life? Who has been a Barnabas for you? Can you name that person? 
If you can, then thank God for that person in your life. If you can't think of a Barnabas, then pray that God will bring one into your life. Because friends, all of us need a Barnabas somewhere along the line. But here's another question. Who has God called you to be a Barnabas for? Are you playing that role of Barnabas in anyone's life? And if so, or if not, why not? Why not? The church needs Barnabas' friends. Every church needs Barnabas's. The fourth character trait of this church at Antioch is that it was an instructed church. It was an instructed church. If you look at, uh, at verse 26 again, or 25, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And that means he, he searched him out, okay? He went searching for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Why did, why did Barnabas go looking for Saul? Why did he search him out? Because he needed help teaching. And when the two of them came back to Antioch, they spent an entire year teaching the Christian faith to these folks. This wasn't the outline of the faith. This wasn't even membership class at Brookfield CRC, which I understand is, um, you know, too long or whatever it is, right? <laughs> We're going to make Pastor Young Kwan go through it again. <clears throat> but the church needs teaching. The church needs instruction, friends. Ask the question, though, Why? Why does the church need instruction? And why is it tied so closely to the fact that it's at Antioch that the people were first called Christians? Well, think about what I said earlier. Um, people looked at this group of, of people, these worshipers, this congregation, and they said there's something different about them. Like I said, they were used to seeing groups of Jews worshiping, they were used to seeing groups of, of Greeks worshiping, but not together. There was something different about this particular people. They weren't Jews. They weren't pagans. They were distinct. They had their own identity. And friends, when your identity is not tied to your race, when it's not tied to your class, when it's not tied to some title, some status that you have in the world... Where does your identity come from? It comes from what you believe. It comes from what you believe. And therefore, it was crucial for these people in Antioch to understand what they actually believed. What did they believe? What made them Christian and not something else? Friends, what happens when there is not enough instruction in the church? What happens is the church begins to look exactly like its culture. 
when there's not enough instruction in the church, when we don't understand who we are and why we are that way, why we believe what we believe, then we just simply begin to look like everybody else around us. We sort of learn by osmosis and the church becomes more Dutch, more Jewish, more Latin, whatever it is. We just sort of fall into it. The church at Antioch was an instructed church. They knew how their faith made them different from their culture. Being a Christian takes instruction, friends. The final character trait in Antioch is that it was called, it was a called church. Again, verse 26 says, And when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him to Antioch, and so for a whole year he and Saul met with the church. The word church itself in the Greek, it means to be called, called out, the ecclesia. The church was a called out group. And not only were they called out, but Paul and Barnabas were actually called then to mission. The Holy Spirit came and said, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas for this mission that I have. And friends, that has always been the story with God's people, right? In the Old Testament, it was God who came to Abraham and said, Abraham, leave your family, leave your home, and go to a place that I will show you. God came to Moses in a burning bush and said, Moses, I've got a new job for you. Forget the past, I've got something new in mind. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, it was Jesus Christ himself who came to Peter and Andrew and James and John and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I've got something totally new in mind for you. And now, here in the book of Acts, who does the calling? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who is still in his church and with his church guiding and calling. We respond as a church to God, to the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. We are called people, called out from the world and called into service, right? It's not always mission, but we are called into all of our work and all of our our rest, all of our play. We're called into mission, yes, but we're also called into medicine. We're called into art. We're called into business, and the list goes on and on. If we are a called people, do we recognize that the living God is among us and he still calls? Young people, do you ask that question? Do you pray to the Holy Spirit and say, what are you calling me to do, Lord? Because I know you are a calling God. What are you calling me to do? Because I belong in your service. We have a calling God. Every living church, Christian church, has a calling God in our midst. Um, Pastor Young Kwan put me onto a podcast not long ago, and uh, it was a couple of nuns uh, talking to each other, interviewing each other. Nuns, not in the sense of Catholic nuns. Um, these are the N-O-N-E-S. In other words, they've They've given up faith. They've given up church. They have no commitment, no faith commitment. 
It was interesting just to hear them talk how they've kind of left their faith behind as if it was something that, you know, belonged to their parents and now they've, they've matured and they've grown out of that. At the same time, both of them still wanted some kind of church connection. But they got to make up what that church was. Okay? They got to sort of dream, what would I like the church to be? What kind of church would I want to be a part of? And, and in the end, the one person, um, basically his ideal church was a church that was like a farmer's market. A farmer's market. Why a farmer's market? Do you like vegetables? No, I don't even go for the vegetables. Why a farmer's market? Why do you like a farmer's market? Well, they seem like nice people who go there. And, and we just had a little girl, and I want a place where my daughter can have, you know, friendly, nice people around her and be part of a community. And so it's a farmer's market. And friends, when we generate our own church, that's what we end up with. Churches of our own imagination, of our own creation, and quite honestly, they're quite boring I mean, there are churches that host farmer's markets. That's different. <laughs> when the church is the farmer's market, there's something wrong. When you have a calling God who functions in that capacity, who is alive and real and says, I want you, I want you to do this, this is my mission in the world. When you have a God like that, then you become the kind of church that only God can imagine. That's the church of Antioch. And that's the church that I hope is the church of Brookfield. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be a farmer's market. Sure, we want to be a friendly place. We want to be a good community for children. But we want to be the kind of church where Jesus Christ lives and reigns and where you call. You call us to holiness and you call us to service and you call us to mission. That's the kind of church we want to be by your grace by your power, by your work, a kind of church that reflects the character of Christ, not our own character, not something we can imagine. Lord Jesus, never leave us, but be among us and continue to call your people into action and into love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.